Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Escape the ordinary with green and blacks. Wildly, deliciously organic. Sponsor of The Moments That Made Me, the weekend podcast. A rich, intense chocolate to savour. Hello and welcome to The Moments That Made Me, the podcast that asks people about the key moments, good and bad, personal or professional, that shaped their lives. The moments that made them. This week, Kira MacDonald chats to Sarah McInerney. With a reputation as a woman who was not afraid to ask the tough questions on RTE Radio 1's drive time, she talks about growing up in Galway, how she planned to be a writer, and how that set her on a path towards journalism. From her early beginnings as a writer with the Sunday Tribune to her career in political broadcasting, she recalls the twists and turns, successes and mistakes that brought her to where she is today. As the mother of two young boys, Sarah reflects on how difficult it can be to switch roles after a tough news week and how it is her life's mission to show them that strong women are a good thing. Enjoy. Welcome, Sarah McInerney, to the Weekend Podcast. We're really excited to have you and we love you, so we're delighted that you're here. (laughs) We are big fans. I'm delighted to be here. Is it weird to be uh, being interviewed when you're you? Yeah, I'm getting used to it um, because I've done more and more of it over the last couple of years, uh, but I don't really like it. Um, it makes me a bit uncomfortable. I think it's sort of there's a there's a natural journalistic uh, lack of comfort about being the subject of a story. You know, you, you always want yourself out of the story. So being the subject of a story is difficult um, but that's not to say I like I, I don't want to do it. I just don't find it easy. Yeah, I understand that. I think I'd find it difficult too. The yeah. last week has been intense for the whole country. And I imagine mm. for you sitting in the seat that you sit in, I often wonder what it's like to do the interviews that you do on a news week like this. Yeah, uh, it is. I mean, between what's going on with COVID this week and the Mother and Baby Homes report, obviously, which was you know, so difficult. Um, I have mixed feelings about it. On the one hand, I feel really privileged to be in a position and excited and, and happy um, to be in a position where I can ask the questions that I hope the listeners want asked um, or that I think perhaps they want asked or that I want asked, you know, that I'm interested in, that I'm in a position to ask those questions of people who are in authority or who are responsible for reports or whatever it might be. Um, But on the other hand, I have to say the first day the Mother and Baby Homes report um, came out, we covered it extensively on the show. And I went back uh, that evening to the kitchen and I was sitting down and my husband was saying, you're very quiet, (laughs) you know, and I was like, it's just, it it weighed on me, you know, when you're, and I think, but I think it weighed on everybody like that went into it in any depth at all. Um, it weighed on me, you know, um, but it should, you know, it, it should, it should weigh in all of us. So, so when you're going deep into stories like that, that are very difficult, 
you know, it's very difficult to take yourself away from it. And I don't think necessarily you should. I think it's important to let yourself get emotionally involved in stuff while obtaining your objectivity, which is not an easy balance, but it can be done, I think. And because I think if you don't let yourself get into it, you don't have the passion or the outrage sometimes or the anger sometimes or the um, the interest really to get the questions that I think sometimes people want asked. So I think you have to connect with it um, because otherwise you don't really get into it the way you need to. I totally agree. And you're a mom of two young boys. So mm. like I'm working from our spare room, as so many of us are, doing the job that you do. Do you decompress on on the drive home? Do you kind of go switch <laughs> off Sarah McInerney or T personality into Sarah McInerney mom? Like, how do you do it? Yeah, well, I get up every morning, if I can, a little early to do a little bit of exercise. And that is really my time in the day. It's about half an hour. So it's, whether it's a yoga or a run or something, just to have some time before everybody else gets up. Um, and that's very like important to me. I, I don't like it when I can't do that for whatever reason. I don't feel right for the whole day. Uh, and then the drive to work, because I'm living in Sutton, so it's, you know, it's 40 minutes in and out. So actually I do get a bit, well, on the way in, I don't get time because I'm listening to the news at one or whatever it might be, or I'm listening to radio. Um, but on the way home, yeah, that's my 40 minutes to talk to people. <laughs> I make my phone calls and connect with You're people outside my family. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I just chat on the way home to my friends or family, whatever it might be. So we're here to talk about your pivotal moments, the moments that made you. And uh, we know you're from Galway. We know we we know precious little about your personal life. And I think that that's uh, something to be admired, really, in, in the job that you do. And I think it's been a fairly deliberate thing on your part. Would that be? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I'm like the way I see it, you know, it's fine if people want to ask questions of me, you know, about me as a person, but my family are for the most part off bounds, you know, um, I just, it's, it's, if they want to come out and talk about themselves, then they can, and that is their decision. Uh, but my two-year-old, my six-year-old are not in a position to make that decision yet. And my husband has made the decision he doesn't want to. So that is their choice. And I'm happy to, you know, talk about the fact that they are in my life, but I don't really like going beyond that because that's their lives. That's their privacy. That's their decision. Can we, you tell me a little bit about what you were like growing up? Did you have kind of broad ideas about where you'd end up or what kind of a child were you? I was, I was a sort of, you know, a, sort of a mixture, actually. I was like, I was an introvert. I think I, I describe it as a confident introvert. So, so the so. millennials tell me that it's called an introverted extrovert. Oh, re- that would be it. An introverted extrovert. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't necessarily go looking for attention or I wouldn't be the one shouting in the middle of a group. In fact, at lunchtimes, for example, in secondary school, you'd most likely find me at the back of the classroom reading a book while everybody else was going off doing their thing, you know, socialising and chatting and out in the yard or whatever, I'd be reading a book. Um, and I like my own company a lot. I like quiet time. I've no problem being on my own. I like being on my own. The problem is I never get that time anymore. Um, but like, that's very much who I am. But at the same time, if the spotlight is shone in my direction, 
you know, I enjoy that too. And if it's, if I'm interested in like talking about something or getting involved in something, I've no problem going out and doing that. So I'm not shy, but I'm also not a very social animal. I don't think I'm, I'm not particularly highly sociable. And what led you to study journalism in DCU? Um, <laughs> an, an absolute mistake and misreading of the, uh, the whatever you call that thing, CAO. universities syllabus was it? Is it syllabus? There's another word for it. I think. Um, I wanted to be a writer because uh, I just, you know, I was a voracious reader of fiction growing up. Like, as I said, I just was constantly reading, but it was only fiction. I had no interest in news. I mean, my parents would have the Irish Times or the Independent around the house all the time. Morning Ireland on in the house, you know, new, sorry, Radio 1 would be sort of the background to my life growing up. It was constantly, it still is, it's sort of on all the time <laughs> in, in the kitchen. Um, so it would have been there in the background, but we never really as a family would have like sat down and talked politics or news or anything like that, you know, um, and I had no interest in it and, you know, nothing had led me to have any interest in it. I wanted to write fiction. Who were um, the writers that you read at the time? Oh, you know, honestly, like I don't even know where to start and trying to remember it now. Uh, like I would get I would get stuck into a writer and then I'd go to the library and I'd read everything that they had. And I'd be obsessed with them for a while. And then I'd move on to the next one and do the same thing. Or I had a set of bookshelves and there was a couple, of, not a couple, quite a few books that I just keep going back to. I just read them again and read them again. Once I'd left them, they'd be sort of sitting there like little treats for me that I'd leave it long enough that, you know, I'd not forgotten it, but I didn't know it really well anymore. And I'd go back and I'd rediscover it again and enjoy it again, you know, this little treat. Um, but having said that, I can't like tell you authors. Of, I mean, you know, there was obviously the Jane Austen sort of period and uh, all of that. Um, and and when I was younger, it was Ina Blyton and Mallory Towers and all of that. Um, and then I remember... Who were you in Mallory Towers? I was Daryl. <laughs> so I was. Of course. I was. Of course I was her. <laughs> and I was obsessed with the sea swimming in their, in their beautiful pool. <laughs> Yeah, I know. And I was so disappointed when secondary school didn't turn out like that. Um, and Alicia, I mean, in Mallory Towers, you know, I mean, what, what are you going to do about a girl like Alicia? Wild. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. So that would have been like the starting point. I couldn't tell you as much during my teenage years because it was very varied. Like I went across every different genre and... Um, I just sort of loved it all, really. There was The Watership Down, I think, was probably the first adult book I read, actually, when I was about 11, I think. And I remember sitting outside the school reading because our parents would drop us off a little early because they were crossing town to go to work. So we'd have about half an hour waiting to, for the school to open. And so I'd just sit in my school bag and read for the half an hour waiting. Um, and I remember the principal coming along and looking at the book Watership Down and saying, very adult book for you. <laughs> No, was it? Maybe, I suppose. Like the rabbits got pretty intense in Watership Down when you think about it. Um, but I just remember sort of getting this sense that there was a whole other world of books out there. What did he mean by adult books and what were in these adult books that weren't suitable for me? So that was a whole other door that I went through, obviously. Um, so all of that led me to want to write fiction and then uh, look at finding a job that would allow me to write. And I suppose I just sort of thought, well, journalists write, don't they? You know, um, I looked at the syllabus for DCU and uh, it had a feature writing module. Um, and 
I sort of misread that, I think, in my head and t- took that to be fiction writing or thought feature writing, fiction writing, what's the difference? You know, I, don't, I just don't think I engaged with the whole thing that, that deeply because I'm a bit of a, or I was certainly a bit of a dreamer. Like I just was sort of floating through life in my own little world, happy, you know. Um, so when it came to the college decision, I didn't give it like any huge in-depth thought. I thought this will probably be fine. Um, but I do remember on my first day then in DCU, we had a visiting lecturer, John Simpson from USA Today. It was the first class of the first day. I was late because I couldn't find my way um, to the college because... Well, actually, I thought that buses, (laughs) I was coming from town and I thought that if you put your hand out, a bus would stop no matter where you were, because that's the way they work in Barna (laughs) or they used to. You didn't need to be at a bus stop. So I'd missed a couple of buses because the imp hadn't stopped for me a couple of times. I didn't really understand why. So anyway, I was late and John Simpson um, said, you should be reading three newspapers a day. And if you're not, you're in the wrong course. And I remember just sitting there like gobsmacked. Um, And then he said, there is a word beginning with C. And if you don't have that, you've no place in this job. And I was like, God, what could that be? Oh my God, I don't even know what he's talking about. And of course, everyone else put up their hands and it was curiosity. And of course, you need curiosity to be a journalist. And actually, I'm a very curious person as it happens. But none of it fit with my image of myself or what I wanted to do at the time. Um, So I spent the next four years waiting to finish the course so I could do something else. And um, I wasn't sure what that would be, but I, you know, I think I learned by osmosis as opposed to any deliberate attempt to learn anything that I was being taught because I was disengaged really, you know. Um, but I did learn, as it turns out, you know, I, I took it all in. Uh, and then I got my, as part of that course, I got my placement in, DC, in the Tribune. Of course, I was one of the last people to apply because I sort of missed the whole fact that there was placements. Everyone else seemed to know about it and everyone had got their placement or their CV into RT first. Um, and I didn't even know this was happening. By the time I figured out it was happening, RT had picked all their people. I wouldn't have gone there anyway because I wasn't thinking of myself as broadcast. Um, I wasn't thinking of myself as anything, but if it was, if it was anything, it was going to be writing. Uh, and I got my placement in the Tribune and, you know, within two weeks, I just thought I love this job. It's amazing. What was it? What was the, first of all, the exact same thing happened to me in my journalism course, literally. Really? It's the exact same, the exact same thing. It was amazing. Anyway, what was it like going into the Tribune? Because it was such an exciting paper and it, it just, it had something so uh, visceral to me anyway, it did. It was alive, that paper, and it was full of some of the best journalists in the country, you know, Um, and they're still the best journalists in the country, uh, those who haven't retired, although you could argue that they're still journalists, that they're retired. I mean, so many people that I see around the place now, I know from the Tribune, and it's funny, we still even have a Tribune WhatsApp group that, you know, we talk to each other on. Um, It's like there's this, you know, link between us because it was a different experience than anywhere else I've worked There is a sense of excitement and possibility and adventure and a sense of being the underdog because we were constantly in debt and, you know, struggling, you know, to punch above our weight. But we were punching above our weight um, and we were taking risks and it was just a different. And I didn't realise it was different to maybe the way other papers are, um, but it was, you know, it, it was maybe a little less professional, a little more laid back. 
Um, but that didn't impact, I mean, in the office and I mean in the mindset, but that didn't impact on the output and what we were actually doing. In fact, I think in a way it helped it, you know, um, and a sense of collegiality as well. It was just a great place to work. And what were you writing there? You had a column there, didn't you? Yeah. So for the placement, I was just doing news, um, but I did some feature and I did news. Um, I got in the front page, sec- uh, joint byline in the front page in the second week. Oh, my God. And that was it. Then I was like, I am bitten by this bug. I love this job. It's amazing. Um, I think it was strip clubs or something had been raided. And I remembered a friend of mine who had done her thesis on strip clubs and she gave me a whole load of contacts that she had used for her thesis. And we managed to speak to a whole load of strip club owners um, on the day the story broke and we were the only people who had those quotes on the Sunday. So it just gave me the, like, because I'm very competitive. Um, so like, I really am. That's sorry, one thing I didn't mention. <laughs> but I think you need that in this job. Uh, so it just gave me this like real boost to see that we had scooped everyone else on the Sunday um, and we had got, this, got to the story and got, you know, the quotes that were important, uh, you know, on the day. Um, so I was doing that for the first eight weeks and then Paddy Murray was the editor at the time. He was great uh, and he, my placement ended and I was like, okay, that's the end of me. See you later. And everyone was like, yeah, see you later. And I went home and I was like, right, I am now an unemployed freelance journalist. I never thought I'd end up like this. What age were you then? I was, what, 21, 22, I suppose. Just out of college. On the heap. So, so. On the heap. On the heap, I, I had to go to the door <laughs> office, you know, it's the only time I've been there and it was horrible, you know, it's a really difficult experience for people, like lining up and you just feel crap about yourself, you know, it's not easy to do that. Um, so I went to the dole office, signed up for the dole, got a landline installed in the house, um, met, asked a couple of the senior journalists that I've been working with, Harry McGee actually was one of them who'd been very supportive um, he's in the Irish Times now. And I asked to meet him for some ideas as to what do I do now? You know, where, what are my next steps? And he gave me different contacts of different editors. And he said, you find a story, you pitch it to them. So I was getting all ready to do that. And I had myself all set up. Um, I think it was maybe two weeks that I since I'd finished the placement, I, you know, but it felt like a lifetime that I was unemployed. Um, and then Paddy Murray rang and said, listen, we need someone to cover uh, for the summer. Could you come in for three weeks? Uh, so I was like, yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Tried to play cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not just sitting here in front of a blank screen with no idea what to no, do next. Um, so I went in and I did the three weeks. And then on the Friday of the three end of the three weeks, nobody said to me, don't come in next week. So I just came in the following week and nobody said to me, leave. So I was like, OK. So I did another week. And then at the end of that week, still nobody said, don't come in. So I came in the next week again, like wondering, was somebody going to tell me to leave at some stage? And at the end of that fifth week, Paddy Murray um, came over to me and said, listen, I want to talk to you in my office. And I was mortified. I just thought, God, he's going to say, look, you know, will you please just go home? We don't know how to say this to you. <laughs> I was sure that's what he was going to say to me. Um, but he said, we'd like you to write a column. Sarah and the city will be a social diary on the back page of the paper and also work in news. So do both. So I was delighted. And that's what I ended up doing for, well, I did the column for a year and a half, maybe a little over, maybe two years. I didn't enjoy it. 
Um, it was an interesting learning experience and I met lots of interesting people. I was out maybe two or three nights a week at all these various events and writing about Irish celebrities in inverted commas. And then it um, would have been a, a party every night situation. That's Celtic yeah, Tiger time. Yeah, That's... it was pretty much height of the Celtic Tiger. You know, um, Glenda Gilson was just sort of going out with Brian O'Driscoll and they were the people that you wanted to catch or, you know, Bono if he was knocking around the place. Um, uh, any of the Irish rugby players who else was there there's a couple of sort of stalwarts that would be you know the big people around town um, I can't really remember now at this stage but yes it would have been very much like Reynards and Lilies and lots of champagne and all of that and it sounds great and I no not it just wasn't for me I mean what I really enjoyed though was that I got to write the column with a sort of a cynical sort of look at the whole thing. Um, and Paddy gave me the leeway to do that because mostly social diaries or social diaries, you know, cover these things pretty straight or with a very sympathetic eye, which is fine too. Um, but I was able to be a bit sarcastic and no one pulled me up and I just sort of, so I actually enjoyed the writing of it. Um, but I didn't really want to be doing it. And after a year and a half, I asked, can I wrap it up? And they're like, yeah, that's fine. Move full time to news. Uh, so that's what I did then. Uh, and I was mostly covering... Everything but politics, you know, education, health, crime, um, all the social issues, uh, huge interest in all of them, loved what I was doing, but never went near politics because uh, Shane Coleman, actually, who's in News Talk now, uh, was there and Stephen Collins in the Irish Times. He was the political editor when I started. So they, the two of them had politics covered. And then later during my time there, Conor McMorrow, who's now in primetime, he started working politics with Shane when Stephen had moved on and Harry was sort of working in politics too. They were all, you know, so politics was very much squared off. Um, and I never minded that. It wasn't an area I had any interest in working in. I, like, it's not that I'd made a conscious decision. I don't want to do politics. I just never really considered it. But then you yeah. ended up being appointed a political reporter. Like when that happens, <laughs> this is in Sunday Times. So when that happens, yeah. do you kind of go, <gasps> I need to hold on to my knickers now because I'm going to have to really, or did you go, do you know what? I've got a really good grounding because I've been covering all these other issues for so long. I have a really good sense of what people, what's going on for people. <sighs> it was sort of a little bit of a mixture. So it was John Burns in the Sunday Times I had moved to the Sunday Times on the base that I was going to be doing, sort of similar to what I had been doing in the Tribune. Um, but after three weeks there, John Burns asked to meet me for a coffee. He's the associate editor there. And he said, look, how would you feel about covering politics? And I said, well, <laughs> I don't really know anything about politics. I have no political contacts. You know, it's not an area that I have any expertise in. And he's like, you'll learn. So I said, OK, Um and I didn't really know how to start learning, but he said, you start meeting people for coffee, you start building up contacts. So that's what I started doing. Um, now, it was difficult for the first while because the government that was in situ at the time um, had been there for a very long time. So all the senior ministers would have been, would have their contact, their journalistic contacts already, if you get me. You know, it was very hard for me to start trying to get contacts among senior political figures um, because I couldn't meet them for a coffee. You know, I couldn't ring up a minister and say, do you want to catch up? Um, so that wasn't possible for me. Um, you have to catch these people before they become ministers. <laughs> you know, that's how that works. Uh, so, but having said that, actually, what I, what I really mostly did was cover what was going on 
among the backbenchers and the parliamentary party members and the senators and the councillors. And sure, there's huge amount of stuff there. And then obviously the banks collapsed um, almost immediately after I'd been appointed political reporter. So it was a very steep learning curve, uh, but it was amazing. Oh my God, I loved it. As soon as I sort of got into it, I loved it because politics is about everything I had been doing up to then, but it's at the centre of it. I mean, it's about crime and social issues and health and justice. You know, everything in life is about politics or the other way around, perhaps. Um, It affects every aspect of our lives. And I'd never really appreciated that until I got into it. Uh, And then you realise you're at the centre of the country. You know, you're at the centre of all the decision making. You're at the centre of everything that matters. Uh, And that's amazing to be covering that and asking questions of people and uncovering stories in relation to it. So I loved it. Did you find it hard to ask the tough questions at the beginning? Like, is that a muscle you had to develop or is it something that's just in you anyway? No, I didn't find it hard. Um, No, I, I... Well, I mean, it was a sort of a different role I would have been playing as a print journalist because you're asking, you're not asking tough questions in front of people. You know, you're on the phone and you're trying to get information as opposed to have an interview that would be elucidating for people if they're listening to it. It's a completely different sort of setup, really. So you're asking questions in a very different way that will get you the maximum amount of information without, you know, the your interviewee running away. <laughs> <laughs> so this brings um, us quite neatly towards broadcasting because, you know, you don't want them to run away at all. No, when you you're... don't want them to run away in broadcast either, but they're there and, you know, you have 10 minutes and they can't really run away. And it's a, it's a, you're trying to do a different thing. I think uh, it's very difficult to describe it. I mean, you're trying to, you are also trying to bring new information to people in broadcast, but it's a different type of new. I I don't really know how to describe it. I just know that when I would have been doing print interviews, it would have been, like I said, you know, a, a different approach that would have elucidated the much informa- as much information for me as possible to put into a story that would, you know, and they wouldn't have been just one person, obviously. It would have been a lot of different people. So you're getting snippets here and there, Um you know, you're not necessarily in a confrontational situation. You're just trying to find out, well, did he tell you this or did he do this or did she do this or when did you hear about that? Um, and then you're taking that and you're taking another piece and you're getting all the different parts of the puzzle to see if the story that you've been working on, if you can stand it up and if that's actually what happened and you can be, rely on your sources. So you don't want to antagonise people in that situation because you're trying to get them to tell you stuff, you know. So it's a different it's a different skill. So... Then you become a panellist with Vincent Brown, who is terrifying to a lot of people. He he taught me in college. I was absolutely terrified of him. It was one of the, every time he came into the room, I would shake and go, oh my God, what am I going to do here? That's a baptism of fire to, mm. for that to be your first panellist job. Oh, it was. But he taught me so much, not on purpose, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um he just being on the panel with him uh, taught me that. Well, actually, firstly, it was sort of weird because I didn't I, I didn't I had never seen myself up to that point as being a broadcast journalist of any type. Um, I had been print for, you know, 15 years, maybe at that stage. And uh, I loved print and I, I had no interest in moving on from print until I did broadcast. And then I as in being a panelist and then I just 
it's just the immediacy of it that I loved, that it's just, you know, if a story's breaking, you're right there, it's happening, you're asking the questions right away, you're bringing news to people as it's breaking. Whereas with print, it's, you know, it's slower, it's more contemplative, it's more detailed, it's different. And I love them both, but I really, really enjoy broadcast as a change, really, as much as anything else. Um, But what he taught me was don't say anything unless you're absolutely sure that you can back it up. Uh, So I remember very vividly one evening that I was on and I made a claim. Now, when I say I remember very vividly, I can't remember what claim I made. Um, but I did make a claim that I just sort of assumed was true, you know, like, well, most people like X, you know, maybe something like that. And he said, well, how do you know? And I said, um, well, you know, (laughs) and I didn't know, obviously I had just sort of, you know, that was my perception of the world. Uh, and he kept at it. Like he didn't let me go. Now he just hammered me, uh, and that was a lesson I will never forget. And I didn't forget that it, any other time that I went into him after that, any claim, any statement, any uh, analysis, anything that I was giving him, I was backing it up with facts or research of some sort. And that's invaluable. Like it's a very it's a very basic tenet of journalism, really, you know. Uh, but in terms of broadcast, it was invaluable to me that, you know, broadcast is similar to print and that you just don't say stuff that you can't back up. Green and Blacks. Wildly, deliciously organic. A selection of ethically sourced flavours combined with a rich cocoa intensity. Can you tell us about how you came to RT preceding your arrival to Late Debate? Yeah, so I had left News Talk and I wasn't really sure where I was going from there. I was sort of taking a bit of time, really, to figure it out. Uh, I don't know why, but I didn't... Was it a tough exit from News Talk? Yeah, I mean, like News Talk, again, talk with steep learning curves, you know, um, I'd been popped in there, um, plucked out of print, and fair play to News Talk for taking the chance on me. (laughs) You know, because I had done a lot of panellist work on radio and TV up to that point, but I hadn't done any presenting apart from a couple of stints on Vincent Brown uh, standing in for him. Um, maybe three or four times, you know, uh, like, and they plucked me out of the Sunday Times um, and put me into a three hour radio show, live radio show. I mean, it was, I didn't know anything about running orders. I didn't know anything about stings. Like I didn't have any of the language. I didn't, you know, it was a baptism of fire. Absolutely. Uh, but I learned so much over that year. It was really good. And working with Chris Donahue was brilliant because he was obviously really experienced and really supportive and really helpful. Um, and he saved me a couple of times <laughs> with various different stuff. So he was brilliant. And the team were brilliant. It was a little bit, the, the atmosphere in Newstalk is a little bit like the Tribune. It's sort of the plucky underdog, you know, like, you know, everything stacked up against them in terms of finances. Um, but there's a lot of talented young people there uh, who are working really, really hard and doing their best. Um, so the atmosphere actually is very collaborative and collegiate in there. And the team I was working with were brilliant and they work so hard. Uh, but obviously then it was decided to bring back Ivan Yates, which in hindsight was absolutely the right decision for Newstalk. Um, at the time, I didn't feel it was. Uh, actually, you know what, at the time... I think a little bit, bit of me, even at the time, knew that's probably the right decision. Um, and I'm absolutely 100% positive about it at the moment. Uh, but it was very public. 
and it was very difficult. And I left a staff job in the Sunday Times to do the news talk job. And suddenly I was back being unemployed again. Um, you know, and I hadn't re- like I knew I was taking a risk going to news talk and myself, my husband had talked it through in, in a lot of detail, like, you know, what happens if this doesn't work out? But I don't think I ever really thought it wouldn't work out. I just sort of expected that it would. Uh, so that was, you know, a really, really useful thing to learn that these things don't work out sometimes and you survive that and that's actually okay. You're, you know, you're okay afterwards. Um, so it's even still tough to have call, it publicly though, Sarah. It's tough. Oh, the public aspect Good of it. Lord. I'm sure I wasn't used to any of that. Mm. You know, I mean, it was just, but you know, it didn't go on that long. There was the you know, there's sort of 24 hours where I had to turn off the notifications on my phone, um, you know, on Twitter and stuff because people just sort of went mad. And maybe a couple of days after that. But then for the most part, people just moved on, you know, and I was left. <laughs> so <laughs> then the baby, as they you say. get the call to go. Uh, Will you come um, to Lake Debate, so, Yeah, please? it was difficult. I mean, it was absolutely it was difficult. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. And, and I never expected to find myself there. Uh, but again, like I say, I think it was a real learning curve for me that you can find yourself there and you can survive that and that's okay you know these things happen in this industry particularly like it's much less volatile in print but broadcast is a volatile industry you know and it's very subjective depending on you know who's in charge they might like you or they might not like you and that doesn't mean you're not good you know and that was sort of uh that was a really important part of the, sort of the lesson for me to not take it personally and I didn't really take it personally because I didn't think I'd done a bad job in fact I was pretty sure I'd done a pretty decent job given the circumstances of not knowing what the hell I was doing. Um, and I was getting better and I knew I was going to get better. I just needed more time. Um, but like from an editor's point of view, it's an obvious choice when you have Ivan Yates on the other hand. And he's made for news talk, you know, and he's made for the opinions and the strong editorial sort of slant, which was, I always found very difficult as a journalist to sort of constantly be talking about, you know, well, I think this and I think that um, didn't come naturally to me. Uh, so, you know, it was this sort of big whirlwind of um, drama, really. And uh, I learned a lot from the whole lot of it, you know. It sort of, it feels like it happened to a different person now. You know, I sort of look back and it's like it was just this mad year in my life and I don't really relate to any of it anymore. I remember it, obviously, but I don't really relate to it anymore. So much has happened between then and now yeah I mean yeah yeah, yeah. um since you came to Orti you have developed such a um reputation as the voice of the people in terms of how you speak to people on your shows like you ask the questions that we want and was that was that was that your your whole aim when you came to Late Debate then when you took over from Sean O'Rourke and now in your current role is that what you feel compelled to do Yes. Yes, I suppose is the answer. I I don't think I've ever sat down and thought, I'm going to be the voice of the people. And thank you very much for saying that that, that I am. I'm not at all sure that I am because I don't get it right all the time. And there's plenty of other people who are asking the questions I think that people want. Um, I think that's what we're all trying to do. Uh, but I do know that I get, I do get emotionally engaged in stories, you know, um, and I like I'm not trying to make myself out like some social justice warrior, but I, I hate injustice and I hate 
things that I see as unfair or wrong. And, you know, I, I just, um, it just, and I, I'm sorry, so who, who doesn't, you know? <laughs> sorry, I don't think I'm any different in that way. Um, do you think being a woman has anything to do with the way I you don't know. I don't know. I, mean, I would have described myself as a feminist since I understood what the term meant, you know? Um, like it's been a very uh, integral part of who I am and how I see the world. Uh, so uh, certainly anything when it comes to gender, you know, anything like that. Again, it just sort of gets me, you know, I, I can, <laughs> um, I, I just get involved. I, I get involved is the best way of putting it. Um, and um, maybe then that comes across on air in a different way. I don't know. And sometimes, like I say, sometimes maybe it goes too far and, you know, there's a balance and all that. Uh, but I think that's, it's, yeah, it's just, it's just what, what I want to do. Do you find the keyboard warriors hard? Do you find the, the um, social media difficult to navigate? Yeah, <laughs> Sometimes. Uh, I've been lucky so far in that I don't get a whole lot of abuse. I do sometimes, you know. Um, most of the time I can see it coming. Uh, I Like if I'm doing a particular interview, I will know that I will get abuse afterwards because particularly on Twitter, which can be an absolute echo chamber, people will expect a certain narrative out of an interview. Um, and if it doesn't go to that narrative, then they get very unhappy. So sometimes I know going in, into an interview that I'm going to be asking questions in such a way that I think are the right questions that need to be asked, but they won't suit the Twitter narrative. Um, but that's my job. You know, I like I, I can't be led by Twitter as to what questions to ask. Uh, so when you know it's coming, it's easier. I mean, the odd time you sort of get slammed for something that you just didn't expect or, you know, um, I don't really find it that difficult, though. I like I've, I tell you why, because I've seen it happen to everybody and I don't take it personally. It's like that's the way Twitter is. It's it's sort of mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, I tweeted about my son's shoes yesterday. Um, I ordered them from uh, a store that I thought was Irish. I, but I didn't, to be honest, I didn't really give it that much thought. I just ordered them from the same shop that I always go to. And um, they still haven't arrived because of Brexit. Um, and I mentioned this on Twitter and people got on to me about why I wasn't ordering Irish, you know, so people are, oh God, it's just, you know, it can be exhausting, <laughs> you know, it's just like, oh God, I just wanted shoes. The toddler keeps pointing at his toes and saying, too small, mama. And I'm like, I'm doing my best. I'm, I ordered them weeks ago. <laughs> We're all just trying. And um, the final thing I want to ask you about is, uh, I'm raising two little boys also, oh. and, uh, it's really important to me with my two little boys that um, as they grow up in Ireland, that they know that uh, there are certain things I disagreed with and certain things that I um, I lent my voice to say this is wrong. In today's Ireland and in the job that you're in, do you feel that that's really important as a mom of boys, yeah. as a mom of children, yeah. um, of, of just children, full stop, I think, uh, that are coming up, that they aren't going to go to us in 20 years' time. Why did you say nothing about direct provision? Why? Yeah. You know, this kind of thing. Yeah, I do. I actually feel very strongly about all that. Um, I, I, My two-year-old, obviously, isn't engaged yet, but my six-year-old is, and he asks, I suppose, because he would hear a lot of news current affairs talk in our house because I'd be talking to my husband about it the radio is on and he's constantly listening and asking questions 
And, you know, I just give him the overview and I can't wait to teach him about all the stuff that I want to teach him about when it comes to that and hopefully shape his worldview in the way that I would like it to be shaped. Um, but I think that is really important. Um, and also, you know, again, as the mama boys in particular, about how he views women and um, all of that, because there is a certain amount of that that I can't control because of what's coming at him from screens and society and shops and all of that. You know, this perception that pink is not for girls. Like I've been battling that now for about three years. I've been making my husband wear pink T-shirts. <laughs> See, Tata loves pink, don't you, Tata? <laughs> it's salmon it's not pink <laughs> but to be fair to my husband he plays along he doesn't need to play a role because he, he very much agree with that and he's like his constant refrain is I'm the boss in our house uh, mama is the boss uh, so that's what they hear and that's what they're seeing so for me that gives me a lot of comfort that you know they're seeing a very equal relationship and uh, if not that he's they're being told that I'm the one in charge <laughs> of course that's not true but I just like that they're seeing a strong female figure, you know, in the house um, and they're hearing that narrative from both of us uh, to try and counteract some of the other stuff that I think is, is just being thrown at them that I can't I can't seem to, uh, you know, uh, battle, you know, some of it. It's just they'll come out with stuff. Ben will come out with stuff that I'm just like, how did you get that idea? Where are you hearing that? You know, that X is not for girls or X is not for boys or girls are X or boys are, you know. So uh, that's going to be a constant battle, I can see. Uh, but I'm, you know, I'm there for it. Yeah. Sarah, thank you so much for talking to us. I really, really appreciate this. No problem. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thanks to Kira McDonnell and of course, Sarah McInerney. Sound and editing by JJ Vernon. We'll see you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.